0: Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 24, we've continued our series on heroes, uh, but Hebrews chapter 11, you have to remember, was written to a group of Hebrew believers who had been saved, Uh, they had accepted Christ through faith, and they'd received the grace of God because of that, because of their faith, no works, no merit of their own, and yet the pull and the sway of their old religion and their own faith, and if nothing else, just the remnants of those thoughts uh, had pulled them back and drawn them back, and and now the writer of Hebrews is writing to them, and this chapter is used as a sort of hall of fame of great men and women throughout uh, their heritage, their Jewish heritage, and they're looking back on these people, and he's saying all of them, all of them from Enoch to Abraham to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, all of these men, every great thing they ever accomplished was through faith. But more than that, their relationship was with God was achieved by faith. It was not because they were qualified any more than you are. It was not because they were better than you. And I'll tell you, sometimes the temptation is there that we would read our Bible... And imagine that the men and women in these pages are somehow more qualified or better than us. But the reality is the only thing that makes these men and women great is their faith in a great God. And that's what the Hebrew writer is trying to tell these Hebrew believers here. He's trying to say, these men and women were saved by faith. And now we come to Moses, as we studied last week. Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, as they had the faith to let go of Moses on that river, as they had to trust God with their situation. Now we find we're more into Moses' life. And in the next five verses, the the writer of Hebrews sums up all of Moses' life in five verses. Let's read them together. The Bible says in verse number 24, by faith, when, when he, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, assaying to do, were drowned. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would help us as we study your word. Help us to be biblically correct. Help your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. The great man of God, Moses, did many, many great things throughout the word of God. He lived on this earth 120 years 40 in Egypt, 40 on the backside of the desert leading sheep, and then the next 40 uh, delivering the children of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Had many great adventures, had many great victories, a few failures along the way, but you have to say at the end of his life, Moses was a great man of God. And yet the Hebrew writer contains his entire life story in five verses here. Just five verses. Let me ask you, if if, say someone were to write an autobiography of your life, somebody was to take your life story and every spiritual victory you've ever achieved and every great moment in your life, would they be able to fill up five verses I mean, would we've all probably done great things. Maybe uh, you had a great letterman jacket when you were in school. I've noticed as I've aged that letterman jacket has become less and less important to me as it gets snugger and snugger and snugger on me. See, the things that seem so important to us when we're younger, really as we age, seem less important every single day. And yeah, we've all accomplished things. Maybe, you, uh, maybe you're good at your job. Maybe, maybe you have a nest egg for your family. We've all accomplished things, but those aren't spiritual things. I'm asking you this morning, if somebody were to write down the great spiritual victories in your life, would it be able to fill up five verses? I watched this last week as a young man had uh, p- posted on YouTube. He had taken a picture of himself every day, I believe it was for eight years. And then he played those photos in rapid succession, and you could see the process of age. And I thought to myself, man, get a life. (laughs) But really, as I sat there and watched this young man's life develop, what struck me is that his entire life is now contained in an eight-minute video. What are you accomplishing in your life? Would you say that you are a man or a woman of God? Because at the end of of Moses' life, there was no argument about it. He was a man of God. And that's what we should all aspire to be. This morning, if we were to build, say, we were to try to build the perfect soldier, what, what characteristics or qualities might we assign to that person? I thought a little bit about that and I wrote down some things that I think if I were to make the perfect soldier, I would maybe try to make him have these qualities. Number one, I think a soldier must be courageous. I don't understand it and if you served in our military and you fought in any war or even didn't fight in a war, the fact that you signed your name on the dotted line ready to go to war is a very courageous thing and I'm incredibly thankful for it. I think courage, first and foremost, is important in the life of a soldier because when everybody else runs away from the gunfire, they run to it. It's very, very admirable quality, but a soldier must be courageous. Secondly, I think they must be strong. I think there are certain physical qualities that they must be able to meet because they put on big rucksacks. I mean, they've got 80 pounds on their back. and many cases, they fight in very arid climates and very hot climates, for instance, in Vietnam or in Afghanistan. I mean, those are very, very hot climates. And they have to have all this camouflage on. And they've got all the supplies that's necessary for their living and their bedding and their, their food. And they carry all of this on them. They've got to carry water with them. I mean, they must be physically... Physically strong, but they also must be able to endure through the hard fight. You know, the, gun stop, the gunshots don't stop flying just because you get tired. Amen. I mean, you got to stay in that foxhole, and until the last shot has rung out, you got to stay active, engaged in the fight. He's got to be strong. He must endure. He must be courageous. I thought that a soldier must be intelligent. Because it's not as simple as just shooting somebody. Any idiot with a gun can do that. And that's proven almost on a weekly basis here in America. It's not enough to just be able to pull the trigger. You must be able to evaluate your enemy, assess the strategy that they're implementing, and then counter uh, that strategy with that of your own. Many times it takes great teamwork and effort and cooperation for one unit to beat another enemy as they coordinate with one another. Maybe they're flanking them or going around a different direction to get a better vantage point or a better angle on the enemy. You must be intelligent. You can't just send any dummy into war with a gun. Then finally, I think that our soldiers, they just must be valiant. Just ready to fight for a valiant cause. See, there's people in this world that fight for crazy causes. People that think that just because they can blow somebody up, they're going to get to go to heaven and get 70-some-odd virgins is not a valiant cause. People that burn our flags frustrate me because the people that gave them the freedom to burn those flags were the people that were standing under those flags as they fought for their freedom to do that. Our soldiers are fighting for a cause greater than their own life, and that to me is very admirable. And I think if you have those qualities, you have, at least by my estimation, maybe you could add others, a pretty perfect soldier. But this morning I look at a man of God, and I understand that a man of God is not a title easily achieved, I certainly don't throw it around uh, flippantly. When we invite somebody to this pulpit night, tell you that they're a man of God, it's because I know that they're a man of God. And I know them personally and I have a relationship with them. And if I ever say to you that this man is a man of God, you must understand me. That is about as high of a title as I can ascribe to any one person. Amen. Moses is that kind of man. So let me ask you, what qualities made up his life? that made him this type of man? What, what qualities made up the character that he had that made him a man of God? I see two very easy. You say, Brother Andrew, not three. No, just two this morning. Two qualities that made Moses a man of God. Number one, a quality of commitment. He had committed himself to God unlike very many people in the Bible. Verses 24 through 26 tell us that Moses had given everything that he was, everything that he could have hoped to be, to God. The word commit means to pledge or to bring a certain course or policy. It means setting yourself on a journey and not deviating from it. Commitment. See, a lot of people start well, but not as many people end well. Commitment is truly starting well and finishing well. Uh, from time to time, every year we'll go out to the ranch and we'll have to plant some seed for our farm. And we'll have about 20 or so acres out there that we've got to plant and make sure that it gets done. And and uh, we usually put wheat or oats in there for the, the cattle and deer. We love feeding deer. They're very nice to watch and occasionally slather in butter and garlic. But uh, other than that, I mean, we just really go out there and plant and one thing you learn when you're farming is uh, the, the work that you put in, you may not see it at first, but the, the quality of work that you do is revealed when the wheat comes in. I remember when I was younger, dad set me on the tractor and he said, all right, Andrew, this is the grain drill. We put all the seed in the grain drill. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to go down and back and down and you're going to plant the seed that's going to grow. Man, when that seed came up, it looked like I had been imbibed when I was doing it. I'm talking about, it looked like Jim Beam was sitting with me on that tractor. Jim Beam, I think. I don't know. I'm not real. Help me out, uh, Brother John. What is it, Jim Beam or Jim... I'm just kidding with you, buddy. I'm just kidding with you. But man, when that wheat began to come up, man, it was all wavy and I didn't hold a straight line. And as I've, as I've grown, as I've had more experience, you know what I've learned is the only effective way to actually planting your wheat in a straight line... It's picking an object out at the other end of the field, whether that's a fence post or a telephone pole or even a dead tree that sticks out. Fixing your eye on that object and not deviating from, look. don't, don't look away from it. Because if you look away from it for one moment and look back at what the, the drill's doing or maybe what your tire's doing, guess what? That's when you start to veer. And what what Moses the man of God did is he set his eyes on God and no matter the children of Israel's murmuring or complaining no matter how tough Pharaoh might have been to negotiate with all of this really was just circumstantial and 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 changing things but the one unchanging thing in Moses' life was that which was said to him at the burning bush and he says when when uh, i ask who sent me what should i say and God said i am that i am the bible says the lord never Changes And that was the one unchanging thing in Moses' life. So Moses committed himself unto God. But no matter how firm our commitment in God may be, there will always be obstacles that try to pull us away from that commitment. There were in Moses' life, number one, I want you to see this morning, that prominence was somewhat of an obstacle for him. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, why did, that, why did the Bible put it like that? Well, I think the Bible put it like that because there was certain prominence that came along with being the son of a princess. I mean, he, was, he had the esteem of his colleagues. I mean, he had the position that everybody wanted. He, he was somebody in Egypt. He was the son of the princess. The Bible tells us that he looked at that relationship and he looked at that uh, uh, prominence and he just said, you know what, I really don't want it because I would rather have a relationship with God and identify with the people of God than to have everybody looking at me and saying, wow, he's really achieved something great. And as sad as it is to say, there are many Christians who throughout the course of their life fall prey to this obstacle. The fear of man bringeth a snare, the Bible says. You know why that is? Because you can never please everybody. And the moment you think you finally get the promotion that will finally make you mean something for your family, guess what? There's going to be another position that you want next week. The moment you finally get along with everybody, guess what? Somebody's going to be born you won't get along with. The fear of man bringeth a snare. Trying to get somewhere without God's help is a Uphill battle, and guess what? You're probably rolling backwards. we got to understand that uh, promotion cometh not from the north or the south or the east or the west, but it is God that raises up and sitteth sitteth one up and putteth down another. Promotion comes from God. Friend, don't try to run the rat race only to realize at the end of the day that you've been the rat the whole time. Too many Christians are out trying to become somebody great. You know what I would like? I would like Christians to commit to serving somebody great. And that's it. Because he who came to this earth didn't come to be somebody. The Bible says the God of the universe, the creator of all that is, came to this earth. And he did not come to be ministered unto. He came to minister and give his life a ransom for many. He that was sovereign came to serve. We have Christians trying to be somebody in the church. Well, I want to be a Sunday school teacher. I I want to be the bus captain. It's not just enough for me to work on a bus. I want to be the bus captain. Maybe it's at your work. I I want to finally get six figures because that'll mean that I've really achieved something. No, 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 no. Six figures is just a number on a paper and it don't at all determine the quality of life that you've lived. Some of the most miserable people I've ever known died with the largest bank accounts. Prominence stood in the way of Moses, and yet he shed all that and he said, I'm going to follow God. Not only prominence, but secondly, this morning, pleasures. The Bible says in verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. The Bible says for a season because that's the way sin pays out temporary, not lasting. Oh, the, 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 the momentary high of drugs or alcohol, it's good while it's there, but guess what? It's terrible afterward. You ever notice the beer commercials don't show you the morning after the party? Yes. Why do you think that is? Because that's not an attractive sight when somebody's covered in their own vomit. Amen. Nobody wants to be a part of that party. It's just the one the night before. And that's the pleasures of sin for a season. It's not good when, when, uh, people, when Christians take, uh, take, commit their lives to uh, only pleasing themselves, trying to get what they can get and trying to be somebody. The Bible tells us that there was a group of people throughout history that did this. Is At the time of Judges, the Bible says there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Amen. So if they wanted something, they took it. If they wanted to go somewhere, they went there. There was no consultation of God. There was, no, uh, 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 there was no commitment to God. The Bible tells us that we fight this on a daily basis, trying to not do what seems right to us. In us, the natural man will always crave and hunger. It always wants what it wants when it wants it. It's like the toddler at the checkout stand. How many of y'all are thankful for the person at Walmart that came up with the idea of putting the candy right by the checkout line? I mean, at that point in time, it's too late to like trick your kid like, oh yeah, we'll put it in the basket. And then while the kid's not looking like, put it back up on the shelf, you know, over in the, the, like the frozen food section. What's this Snickers bar doing here? But no, 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 it's too late at that point. What our, what our carnal nature, what our natural nature does is it's that, it's that spoiled toddler that throws tantrums when it doesn't get its way. And the Bible says we fight this every single day and, and one temptation may not appeal to you, but I'm telling you some temptation does appeal to you there's some pleasure that appeals to you. Maybe it's an a, a, a overabundance or, or indulgence of things. Maybe it's just eating. Maybe it's looking at things you ought not look at. Maybe it's a talking in ways that you ought not talk. There's pleasure in sin, but it's only for a season. And as we fight this fight, we must realize that the before picture is always more appealing than the after picture. Because the Bible says there is a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The person that indulges in the pleasures of sin will not find it a happy ending. And we always hear of these storybook endings, and they lived happily ever after. That doesn't happen in real life. The pleasures of sin. Moses said, I'm not going to enjoy the pleasures of sin. I'm going to commit to God. So he, first of all, overcame the obstacle of prominence. And secondly, of pleasure. And thirdly, of possessions. Having something. The Bible says in verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches. And there could be a sermon preached on that. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches... Than the treasures in Egypt. Now I preached on uh, many of these verses last Sunday night. The Lord had really been speaking to me about Moses and his commitment to God. And and it was burning in my heart. And I knew I was going to be borrowing a lot from this Sunday morning's message. But I just couldn't help but preach on that topic. What God had placed in Moses' heart. But here uh, I I mentioned last Sunday night how... uh, In Egypt, they were known for their overindulgence of things. For instance, when King Tut died in his pyramid, in his sarcophagus, they laid on his face a 22-pound solid gold mask just to die with him. Many times they would bury these kings and these pharaohs with riches and great wealth as if it was going to help them in the next life. This... Culture. This uh, this place would have had plenty to share at this time in the Bible. They are the uh, world power of the day. Everybody comes to them for resources and supplies when they need them. And yet Moses looked at all the treasures in every safe and says, I esteem the reproach of Christ greater riches than every banker in Egypt has. I esteem suffering with God and His people a greater prize and possession than what people could have in this life. I wonder if uh, we were to ask Moses if he ever felt like he gave up anything to serve God, what he would say. You know, I was reading a verse the other day. It says this, Jesus told them, There is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive... Now listen. Manifold more in this life and in the world to come, life everlasting. I shared with our Sunday school class the other day, I think sometimes we get the idea that uh, Christianity is like a long-term investment. Like we're suffering here so we can have happiness there. No, Jesus says... There is no man that has given up all the things that this world has to offer and chosen to serve me who's ever looked back on his life and said, you know what, I've actually given something up to serve God. I wonder if like those post-game interviews at the end of a game where they interview the winning quarterback and they say, hey, how how'd you think the team played? What what was the key to the win tonight? I wonder if we did that in Moses' day. I wonder if we could stick a microphone in Moses' face as he's leading two and a half million Jews out of Egypt, and then not only are they leaving Egypt, but they're wearing the gold and the rings, and they've spoiled the Egyptians without ever swinging a sword or launching an arrow. I wonder as they're leading everybody out of Egypt to go into the wilderness to worship their God, I wonder if we could stick a microphone in Moses' face and say, hey Moses, how was it when you gave up everything to follow God? I wonder if he'd say, you know what, it's been a real struggle. I look back on the days that I've really given up a lot. I I don't think he'd say that at all. I wonder if we could go to the Red Sea crossing as Moses puts that staff up in the air and man, maybe the earth shook. I don't know exactly how it happened, but the water began to part as Pharaoh's armies closing in behind them. The cloud, the pillar of fire separating them from the Israelites. And I wonder if Moses, he says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And as he says those words, the waters begin to part and the ground becomes dry. I wonder as he starts to lead those children children of Israel through that Red Sea, I wonder if I could take a microphone this morning and put in his face at that exact moment and say, hey Moses, what's it been like giving your life to serve God? I wonder if he'd say, you know what, Brother Andrew, I really regret it. There are certain things that I miss about my old life. I wonder when Moses is up on Mount Sinai as the children of Israel are down at the bottom of the mountain, I wonder as he's up there those 40 days spending time with God as he's receiving the law of God, spending probably a time closer to God than few, that few people will ever experience like he experienced that day. I wonder over the course of those 40 days, as he's coming down out of the mount of God with the tablets of law in his hand, and his face is shining because he's been meeting with Shekinah glory the whole time, I wonder if we could say, Hey Moses, do you regret living for God? I wonder what he'd say. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, I've never met a man of God at the end of his life that I would put a microphone in his face and say, do you regret living for God? Right. Do you regret making a measly salary? Do you regret not having a big 401k? Do you regret not making the big money? Do you regret not being able to afford all the toys that your peers were able to afford? Do you regret any of it? I've never met a man of God at the end of his life that said, you know what? It's been a real struggle. Because at the end of life, toys don't matter. Amen. At the end of life, you leave your bank account with those that you love. You don't even get to enjoy it most of the time. Moses looked at all the obstacles of life and said, You know what? I committed my life to God long ago, and guess what? By God's grace, I've stayed committed to Him all these years. It's not enough to live for God during your teenage years, but you must live for God as a young man and as an older man. You must live your life committed to God, never, never wavering from the faith that you began in. If I were to make a perfect man of God, I'd say, number one, he has to be committed to God. And then secondly, this morning, I'd say he has to be surrendered to God. When we get saved, we're not leaving the battle with the flesh to now enter into battle with the Spirit. A lot of Christians enter into a spiritual tug of war when they get saved. As the old man draws them to things that they used to do and old appetites that they used to have, the Holy Spirit tells them, you know you ought not go here. You know you ought not do this. You know this isn't right for a Christian. And we began to barter. We began to negotiate with God as if that's a winning proposition. You know what, God? I'll go to church Sunday morning. And then the rest of the week, I'll try to not say many cuss words. But Lord, I just don't think I can do the Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night thing. That's just not for me. Maybe it's good for other people. It's just not for me. And we negotiate with God like this. The Christian life is one of surrender, not struggle. My dad pulls his hanky out sometimes and tells us back in the old days, they would wave those hankies showing how they were surrendering their lives to God. Surrender, total surrender, absolute surrender to whatever God has for him. Notice in verse number 27, the Bible says, By faith he forsook Egypt. Not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now you can choose to interpret this verse one of two ways. The forsaking of Egypt either is when he first left Egypt for Midian. So at the moment when he slays the Egyptian man in anger and news gets back to Pharaoh and the Bible tells us that Moses fled from Egypt to Midian, you could say that that is the case here. The issue I have with that is, the Bible says, not fearing the wrath of the king. And in Exodus chapter number three, the Bible says, or in chapter number two, the Bible says, and Moses feared. It doesn't specifically say he feared the king or or the Pharaoh, but, but it says he feared. So, I don't think it's that. Here's what I think it is. I think it says, by faith when he forsook Egypt, meaning when he led the children children of Israel out of Egypt, the Bible says he did not fear the wrath of the king. In other words, all those times when he entered the court of Pharaoh, all those times when he went in there and says, God has said, thou shalt let my people go. All those times when he faced him, knowing full well that Pharaoh had power to kill him. All those times he didn't fear the wrath of the king. He endured, yeah. kept going back, kept going back. And Pharaoh said, well, you can go, you know, one day's journey. You can go three days journey, but you got to come back. You got to leave your wives here and your children here. You got to leave your livestock here. Pharaoh, or Moses said, no, 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 we're not, we're not negotiating. He endured. He stayed faithful under intense pressure. I think that's when it was. It was all those times he entered into the courtroom of Pharaoh to declare, God has said, let my people go. He endured during those times. But do you remember when God initially revealed himself to Moses and told him this great plan? about how he would be the I am that would send Moses and he would go and deliver his people. Do you remember Moses' initial response? He said, Lord, I am not an eloquent man. In other words, me no talk so good. He says, I I can't go in there and speak to Pharaoh like that. Here's, Here's Aaron. Aaron's a preacher. He he speaks a lot better than me. Why don't you let him go for you, God? There's no way I could do this. You know what? Moses had to surrender one day in his life that God had gifted him for the ministry that he had called him to. And whether or not he had insecurities about himself, it didn't really matter. He had to surrender his tongue to God. Whatever God told him to say, that's what Moses said It wasn't up to Moses to decide what he would use his talents for. It was up to God to decide. And he surrendered that to God. Not only did he surrender his tongue to God, but he surrendered his trust to God. Verse number 28, the Bible says, Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them this speaking of the 10th plague that was brought upon Egypt, when the death angel would come and go throughout Egypt and throughout uh, there where the children of Israel were. And and the only way that the children of Israel would be saved was they were to take a lamb and they were to slaughter that lamb and they were to place the blood upon the doorposts and they were to eat that lamb. There were very specific instructions given It was the first month of the year and the Bible says that on the 10th day of the first month they would select the lamb. On the 14th day they would slaughter the lamb. They had a very specific recipe for how they were to prepare the lamb. They were to put it and roast it with fire and eat it with very bitter herbs and eat only unleavened bread. And while they ate the lamb, if one lamb was too many for their household, they were to bring more people in so that one household would feed one lamb and that one lamb would be enough for all that were in the house. The Bible tells us that that they were to eat the lamb fully clothed with their shoes on their feet, All this process was delivered by God to Moses, to the people of Israel. The Bible says Moses did this in faith. And it was the blood that was applied to the doorpost that would determine whether or not the angel would pass over them. That's where the term comes from, Passover. Can you imagine being a small child on that night? In a household, maybe not understanding all that there was to understand. You know that you normally, uh, as a slave, didn't go out and slaughter this many first year, spotless, without blemish uh, lambs. So this was a unique night, certainly. You know you didn't normally have guests over this time of night. You know you normally didn't eat fully clothed. You, you, you probably, as like a 12-year-old kid, would understand that, that there were some things that were different about this night. And then maybe in overhearing the conversation at the table between your mom and dad and maybe the other folks that you had in your home, you heard them talking and discussing back and forth what was going to happen. You heard terms like, and the angel of death will come and kill the firstborn of every house. You probably can't even wrap your mind around that. And the fear, the somberness of that environment as, as, as you don't know what's going on, but you've just taken Moses at his word and you've put this blood on the doorpost and you don't understand all of it. And as the night progresses, a howl begins to occur in Egypt. The Bible tells us that because of this event, there was a weeping and a wailing like it had never been heard before. So throughout the night, you're sitting at the dinner table with your family, not words being said. Fearful, uncertain. And just down the way, you can hear the voices begin to cry as the mothers discover that their baby boy has been killed. Can you imagine being in that environment? And you realize that the only reason that you were not killed yourself was because the blood had been applied to your house. All that are in the house covered by the blood are saved. While there is great fear in that moment, there is great certainty that what God said He would do, He did. You understand the idea that the death angel hovered over Egypt is a very fearful one. But reality is, the death angel hovers over uh, every one of us in this room today. The Bible says, what is man's life? It is but a vapor. It appeareth for a little time and then is not. It's just gone. You, you You're not promised tomorrow. You don't know all it takes is one crazy driver out there. And you don't know you have tomorrow. The death angel hovers over us all. The Bible says, it is appointed unto man once to die. After this, the judgment. The death angel hovers over all of us this morning. And God's prescription for the children of Israel is the same one for me and you. The Bible says that we are to apply the blood of Christ, God's perfect and precious and spotless lamb to our life. Peter puts it like this. For we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold. But we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ... As a lamb without spot or blemish. You understand this morning that the reason that Christ died. All of his blood was spilled out on the cross. So that the water came after it. All of his blood was shed. Why? For all the sins of the world. And this morning there is great uncertainty when we face the great enemy of death. Every one of us there is uncertainty. But this morning God's prescription is the same for you that it was for them. Apply the blood of the lamb to your Doorpost to your heart and God will save you this morning there's great fear and great uncertainty around the table but if God be for us who can be against us you see Moses was a man who had placed his trust in God have you done that have you handed over the way you get to heaven to God you can't do it on your own Oh yeah, you needed to eat you, you, you needed to eat it with bitter herbs. You needed to do all these things. But what I see a lot of people doing is they add to the blood of Christ. They say, well, I, I need to go to church. No, you don't need to go to church. You need to have the blood of Christ. Oh, well, I need to be baptized. No, you don't need to be baptized. You need to have the blood of Christ. This morning, Moses placed his trust in God. Did you know you can do the very same thing? It's not a matter of of uh, preference. It's not a matter of denomination. It is a matter of whether or not you have placed your entire and complete trust in the blood of Christ to save you. Moses had placed his trust in Christ. And then thirdly this morning, as he surrendered his life to God, he surrendered his triumphs to God. The Bible says in verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, assaying saying to do, were drowned. The great moment when God parts the Red Sea and the children of Israel cross, cross the ground there, uh, though it was dry, is a wonderful story in the Bible, a record of what actually happened is Moses, through God's power, parted the water. It's an amazing, amazing event in world history. And yet Moses was very clear who gave this victory. He said, stand still and see the salvation, do you know the rest of it? Of the Lord. The Bible tells us that he goes on to say, Which God will show you uh, for the Egyptians whom ye have seen this day, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. The greatest victories of the Christian life are experienced when man keeps his hands out of the battle. When God fights for us. Psalm chapter 118 says, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. When you can surrender your life to God, you'll find it's much easier to surrender the triumphs of life to God. It's funny how we like to pass around praise. We like to give preachers praise for preaching a good sermon. You know what I've learned about that? Every good sermon I've ever heard has come from this book. Preachers change, styles change, jokes change, illustrations change, but the one constant seems to be this book. And the day I hear somebody get up and say, "Will you take your Koran too, I'm probably going to split that joint because I know there ain't no power in that book. This book is where all good things come from, and God gives victories in the Christian life. It isn't about men. It isn't about what we can do or how we can fight our own battles. It's about what God does for us. Moses was a man of God. He was committed to God and surrendered to God. Today, I'm sure I'll probably turn on my television, and there will probably be an NFL game on at one point in time. I Whether it's NFL, whether it's NBA, whether it's hockey, all of them are being ruined by the same thing. Instant replay. If you watch any sports at all, you'll know that over the last several years, even baseball has succumbed to it. They'll take mom, uh, minutes and minutes and minutes of time away from the game, which we all tune in for. To watch referees stare at a screen with headphones on as if our, our confidence hangs in the balance. Yeah. Today we'll probably watch a little NFL over at my house. And one thing that I've always found unique is how these receivers, they catch the, the football and they've got to get two feet in bounds in order to establish themselves as being inbounds. See the edge of these fields, they're green, the grass is green on the field, but the edge is marked by white chalk or paint in this case. And the line is very clear and these receivers will run right up to the line and they'll catch the ball and they'll be leaning all the way out of bounds. And man, some of them make some pretty miraculous catches. Man, one-handed catches, behind the head catches, using other head catches. It's pretty awesome stuff to watch, really. But every time, here's like we watch a great catch, and here's what happens. The referee, no, 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 we need to review it. It's like, or we could just say that that was really good and move on, you know. But no, 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 we need to review it. And they go over to this screen. And then I get to hear Troy Aikman and Joe Buck talk about whether it was a catch or not for three minutes. But they're looking at this screen. Did he get two feet in bounds? There's one foot. And they, they always say this, does the toe drag? <laughs> what they mean by that is, as he's going out of bounds, he might get one foot down, but is he able to just barely rake the fo- his foot, maybe even the edge of his cleat, against the grass? Did he get both feet in bounds? What I find unique about this is these guys have huge feet. 14, size 14 feet, size 15 feet. A guy like Ed Two Tall Jones, up at Old Country State they used to have a handprint, a hand cast of Ed Two Tall Jones. Bigger than my chest, man. That guy was huge. And they have these huge players. Did you know that he can get all he can get 13 and a half inches of his size 14 foot in bounds? But if one part of his foot touches out of bounds, he's not in bounds. You see. If, if he comes down and that first foot's inbounds and he steps on the out of bounds, no, no, he's out. He can do all the crazy catch he wants to do. He can, man, he can catch it up here. He can do great cool things, one-handed, two-handed. He can do it behind the back. He can do whatever he wants. But all that matters is whether he's in or out. And more than that, all that really matters is whether he's all in because if he's not all in, he's all out. Amen. you know the Christian life's very much the same way? You're either all in or you're all out. <laughs> the prophets of God said things like, How long halt ye between two opinions? It's almost like there's a sense of irony. Well, there's only two options. How are you in the middle? How long halt ye between two opinions? Joshua asked the children of Israel he says hey hey guys you need to choose whom you're going to serve whether it be the gods that your fathers served before the flood or whether it be the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, you, you dwell in now. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know what Joshua is saying? I'm all in, committed and surrendered to God. Moses said the same thing. I'm all in, I'm committed and surrendered to God. Are you all in? Because if you're not all in, you're all out.